and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. Now, on today's episode, we are going to try to rise up against the Tyrell Corporation for being a horrible corporation that's like le- unleashing a bunch of like robots on us. But also, we're gonna like go to this like weird apartment where this like old guy lives, and like I don't know, do a backflip or something. But anyway, today though. We're going to be covering a little movie called Blade Runner from 1982. Now, this is a little different than what I have done normally. I did do The Fifth Element before with our boy Devon Taylor, but I actually was suggested to do this movie by some wonderful friends of mine who are actually joining me today for this episode. So that's right. You've heard them on their own show called The Movies That Made Us Gay, where they go over all different types of movies that have, in fact, made us all gay. Please welcome to the show, Scott. Uh, Young Baller and Pete uh, Lozano. Hey guys, how are you guys today? Hello. Hello. And that's hopefully I remembered your names, right? (laughs) Young Baller. You know what? Listen, I also my my Instagram handle. Same goddamn difference. Listen. (laughs) Okay, Scott Young Baller. Got Young Baller on Instagram. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's a Saturday today, and we're recording. You know, um, and we, you know, it's been good. So yeah, when I, I've been on your show before. So I went on for Beautiful Thing, which I thought was wonderful when I was first starting my pod. And then now I was also on your Party Monster episode where we just complain about Party Monster. It was wonderful as well. But I wanted to bring you guys on because you, your podcast has been something that I've really liked for a while. And I'm so glad I was on it too. And I'd love to be on it again. But, you know, I definitely wanted to bring you all on because I want to try and bring on guests and have them talk about movies that they like. And I asked you for different suggestions as i normally do of like hey what would you want to cover if you came on because you know if i have a guest on generally it's either i want them to help me cover a movie or i want them to kind of be the driver of the the episode or be able to talk about something that means something to them right so first off one of yours was like i saw what you did with uh, was it joan crawford or one of those stars right joan crawford one of the weird crawford movies from the 60s yeah, that's not Baby Jane. Uh, then there was another one, The Baby, which I still will do because that Baby. movie, I haven't seen it, but that's fucking crazy. Babies, I feel like you're, you're fascinated crazy. with it. Um, and it's yeah. on Shutter too, so you can watch it. But then you brought this movie to me, Blade Runner. Now, I will say, I had heard of Blade Runner before. I had no goddamn <laughs> idea what it was about. I literally had no idea. And so I was I like... <laughs> I was literally like, I was like, wait, the movie with Wesley Snipes? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? But that's Blade. Um, But like, I was like, okay, Blade Runner. Like, I, all right, cool. But, you know, I was like, all right, well, yeah, sure. Why not? Like, let's, let's talk about it. Let's watch it. And then when I looked into it further and I was like, oh, this is kind of a cult classic because, you know, Wikipedia says it is and the internet says it is. But, you know, I... It is, this does have like a very storied, uh, production history, a release history, everything like that. Um, so I do think this episode in particular, you know, we will talk about the plot a bit and, you know, just the general story of it, but I definitely think we're talking more so about just the impact this movie has had. And again, wanting to have you guys talk about it as well, since you haven't, I don't think this is a movie that maybe has made you gay that you would cover on your show. I don't know. I wanted to talk about this movie, partly just because I think that just the visual look of the movie and the women in this movie are so fucking fierce that I think that's why I kind of gravitate to this movie. But kind of when you mentioned what cult movies do you want to talk about? I mean, you have to start with Blade Runner because Blade Runner, I think, is the 
kind of pinnacle of just cult sci-fi. I mean, there were stuff like Star Wars before, but I mean, nothing ever really, nothing really looked like this movie when it came out in 1982. And I think that's really important. And it's such a huge visual reference for filmmakers like del toro james cameron pete can you think of any well i mean you yeah. you just covered the fifth element on your show mm-hmm. and it's like i feel like we wouldn't have no nope. the fifth elements you know luc besson really true, i mean i know true. the visual inspiration for the fifth element was a lot of was the uh the comic the uh thousand well his own story he wrote that was really no, called planets what is it called uh, valerian, valerian. Mm-hmm. valerian. <laughs> kind of yes yep. yes yes um, no it absolutely was a 100 percent inspiration for him was it was a ripoff of of valerian uh and, but that being said a lot of the visual inspiration for this movie and i think uh it it just has cult classic written all over it um got, just like by the, definition the like, ultimate cult classic it didn't really mm-hmm. get a lot of traction when it was first released it was kind of panned upon first release people thought it was boring whatever but as we kind of go back and and reference it so it's like it absolutely is a cult classic uh, <laughs> i mean kind of regarded as um, one of the greatest science fiction movies of all time i mean this movie like you said pete did not do very well but then in like 2007 it made it on the top 100 afi list of the greatest american movies of all time i think it was a lot a lot mm-hmm. for that when oh yeah definitely started to revisit mm-hmm. it and understand that there's there's a lot here you know the um battlestar galactica reboot on the sci-fi channel in 2004 really owes a lot to this oh, definitely, movie yeah. that a lot of the language that that was used in this the the very first google phones before they were called pixels were called nexus and that was completely from this. I think there was a lawsuit, in fact, <laughs> because they called their phones Nexus, and um, that but that was pulled completely from this. And uh, so just just like Android phones and and calling them droids and all that was mm-hmm. was kind of uh, contentious with with Lucas Google calling their phones Nexus. They ultimately changed it, and I think they're they're Pixels now. Um, but yeah, the early Google cell phones were called Nexus phones and that was just like pulled directly from these from the replicants in this movie and and it's la man yeah it's la baby a different tyrell, type of la like think, for sure i like to think the tyrell pyramid is right off the is is right off the 10 would you say well, so that's what's so cool about this movie is that it's 1982 and it's 1982 futurists and i love all thinking, that shit is thinking like, about what 2019 mm-hmm. would be like and like wireless technology is not a thing. No, nope. personal communication devices are not a thing. There's fucking payphones with video calling on the street. Very like 2001: <laughs> A Space Odyssey. You're like, what the fuck? Like <laughs> they had that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and for those who to... don't know, for those who don't know, Pete and L- um, Scott, you're in LA. You know, you're very much yeah. an LA show. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. um, that is probably also why you wanted to bring on this because yeah, it is this like futuristic LA that is kind of right but kind of not and you're like wait what is this i definitely had the question of like why are there a lot of asian people in this movie because i'm like i know la is like diverse and everything but i was like this also feels and i think scott even we talked on offline you're like yeah it's kind of a mix of like tokyo and la is that what ridley scott wanted to do i guess i was like all right i, think, I guess i buy I it what he wanted <laughs> to do was uh joss whedon did the same thing with with firefly 
Um, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, China and Japan were thought of as these kind of like titans of industry. And I mean, not to get too like socio-political like weirdness, but they really thought... Do it, that, go ahead. They really thought that China and Japan were going to be these like titans of the global commerce mm -hmm. and that pretty much it would kind of incorporate itself with American uh, politics and culture and that cities like Los Angeles and New York would just be kind of inundated with Asian yeah, culture and language and mm -hmm. all that. And so it's just so um, integrated into the landscape in this movie with the giant, you know, 50, 50 story billboards of, you know, of like, Asian women selling Coca-Cola or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and if you watch Firefly, it's the same thing. The characters speak a, you know, kind of a Chinese, like they have little words peppered in throughout. And so it's just their kind of like vision of, I mean, I think, you know, obviously 2019 is coming on. Yeah. And we're not, we're not wearing like severe shoulder pads. We don't have like, the flying cars yet. Yeah. Flying cars. Mm -hmm. But one I, day. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. But, you know, it's just, yeah, it was just an interesting take on, it was kind of like banking and business and where just kind of like commerce was going. And so all the big advertisements, well, the other thing is that a lot of the advertisements in this movie, besides Coca-Cola, are for companies that kind of went under. Yeah. There's like Atari and mm -hmm. Sanyo and like these weird little 80s tech companies that were huge at the time but then didn't really make it i mean didn't everybody assume atari would last through the 1980s i mean <laughs> you know because i mean what with those games honey come on honey oh my god right I'm still, exactly. I'm, still, I'm still playing i forgot what the jungle one was Fro we'll just say frogger Okay, Frogger, gotcha. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, this movie is so interesting, and I have it playing in my background right now, you know, why not? Because um, it is very much about the vibes and all that. Um, this movie also reminds me a little bit of, like, I mean, I think it, this might have already been, uh, not out, but I think the manga had been out. But it reminds me a little bit of like Akira, kind of, sort yeah, of. Like, oh yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. You know, with that whole Neo Tokyo vibe where it's like that, you know, but yeah, I, um, yeah, this movie's so interesting, and I'm glad I have you guys here to talk about it, since it does seem like something you enjoy and love. Um, but as we normally do on the show, we will talk a little bit about you know, some figures of the movie, talk about the production history, how does this movie get released, and you know, what happened with it, and then also the legacy. And then we will talk about the plots, you know, of sorts, and the characters, and all that fun stuff. But let's get started. So, this movie was released June 25th of 1982, which, if you're listening into this episode we're gonna be releasing this about a couple days after the release so that's cool you know uh this was directed by ridley scott uh was this his second movie or did he do a movie before this after alien he i mean this he his debut movie was a movie called duel from the 70s yes. and then written by written by the uh written by the guy who did stir of echoes the book and also okay. his son helps like create bill and ted by the way that's fun I love Work. that. And then Alien. I mean, yes. Alien is a huge sci-fi movie that we love. We have covered mm -hmm. on our show. And that was in That's 1979. Obviously. And yeah, this was his big follow-up to Alien. 
Yeah, for sure. Written by Hampton uh, Fancher and David Peoples. The screenplay was, but this was uh, based off of a Philip K. Dick novel and produced by Michael Dealey. We're looking at a budget of about 28 to $30 million, depending on who you ask. Uh, we're looking at a gross U.S. and Canada box office of about $32,914,489. And then a gross worldwide, because it did get a worldwide release, of $41,722,424. I'm kind of wondering if the worldwide release also was like later on. Like, I don't know if this was like released worldwide everywhere in 82, but who knows? Maybe 89% on Rotten Tomatoes for the tomato meter, what the critics think. And then the audience scores a 91%. It is certified fresh. We've done a couple movies that are certified fresh. I don't always remember them. I know um, Bill and Ted was one of them. So we then have an 8.1 out of 10 on IMDb and then a letterbox score of 4.1 out of 5. And then we have our cast of characters as normal. We have Harrison Ford um, as Rick Deckard. We have Rutger Hauer as Roy Batty. Sean Young, a uh, wonderful, lovely lady, as Rachel. Edward James Olmos, Selena's father, <laughs> to me as Gaff. M. Emmett Walsh as Bryant. Daryl Hannah as Pris. Joanna Cassidy as Zora Salome, William Sanderson as J.F. Sebastian, the old guy with that weird um, apartment that he has. Mm-hmm. Brian James as Leon, Joe Turkel from The Shining as Alden Tyrell, um, and then James Hong as Hannibal Chu, Morgan Paul as David Holden, and then High Pike as Taffy Lewis. Just to talk about the characters a little bit, I mean, the ladies in this movie, as you said, Scott, are peak they're my I mean, favorite. They're so good. Like, Sean Young, I'm looking at her right now. Like, she looks so goddamn good with this hair and everything. Like, she's so great. We were talking I, about the hair. Oh, my it's, God. It's, it's amazing. So it's, it's incredible. It's, Ra- it's so Rachel is just, like, every night she's going to bed with, like, a bonnet on. And, mm-hmm. like, Goals. She has, Absolutely. like, completely wrapped up in toilet paper. Teasing with, that like, hair. A, a mama, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Thelma Harper, like, little bonnet. Yes. Love it. Like, like it's so good. Paper. And then Daryl Hannah, like pre splash, I think maybe kind of sort of. Yes, absolutely. Um, also doing like, um, I also just found out she technically has autism. I didn't know that. I was like, that's kind of interesting, but like, that makes yeah, like a lot yeah. of sense. It doesn't it? Make sense. It makes sense that she's on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love her though. She's a fucking amazing. Although when she did a walk to remember, her face did scare me just a little bit. Um, but it's okay. You know, she got fillers and it, you know, didn't work that one time. Anyway. And as I said, Edward James almost like, I know he was in this movie, but he's always going to be Selena's dad to me. Okay. Listen, you guys just covered Selena, I think too. So it was like, we did oh. a Selena episode. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Okay. Jennifer Lopez. Why did you not get an Oscar for that? <laughs> you know, I think she might have been nominated. I don't remember. Absolutely not nominated. Nope. Whatever. God damn it. <laughs> I can dream. And then, of course, because I have covered it a couple weeks ago, I'm right on top of that, Rose. I mean, Joanna Cassidy's in this. Mm, Joanna ah. Cassidy. Do you know the whole thing about the director's cut of Joanna Cassidy's scenes? And we were talking about it earlier. Oh, we'll talk. I, we could talk about it later when we talk yeah, about the cuts. Yeah. Oh, sure. I want to hear about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the guy from The Shining, bartender from The Shining, is in this mm-hmm. movie, too. Fun. And then Harrison Ford. I mean, he's cool. I, I don't mind him. I'm not an Indiana Jones person or whatever he did. I, oh, I 80, know. like early 80s. <laughs> whatever he did. Early just, 80s. You know, Harrison Ford, those little movies that he did. Early just 80s. Harrison Ford. Like oh, my right. God. I get it. Like, he made oh, this God. movie back-to-back with Raiders. He made this movie back-to-back with Raiders mm-hmm. of the Lost Ark in between The Empire Strikes yep. Back and Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Like, this man can buy and sell you and not even yeah. blink. 
Like, it's fine. And, you and do a few other things too. Why not? Hmm. Oh, and I, that is completely okay with me. Harrison Ford is, uh, he's kind of a grizzled old man these days. Yeah. But it's like, fuck it, man. Did you just hear the list of movies we just said? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> it's, and these it's are not cult good. movies by any means. These are nah. huge popcorn for the people. Yeah. Movies. And for him to go from Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, I mean, Rucker Howard, Na- Rucker Howard, I'm sorry. Um, Ridley Scott now is obviously this prestige director and like mm-hmm. people give their left nut to be in like Gladiator 2. But right. like 1982, Alien was a success and it changed the way we looked at sci-fi movies much the way Star Wars did. But he was still kind of not unproven, but still kind sure. of like, okay, he's that I new mean, kid. You he know? was a, sure. a commercial art director that just turned yes. into directing features. Yes. Doing these Chanel like... It- perfume commercial and it's a weird genre movie too that's what i'm saying yep. so for, for it is. who's coming from a handful of genre movies but mm-hmm. done by the biggest directors in hollywood that are getting the biggest releases and like changing the landscape of blockbusters for him to say okay i'm gonna do this weird grimy robot movie yes in london with this guy that came from commercials and does kind of avant-garde like slow paced quiet sci-fi thrillers sure yeah. i'll do that on my break between, like, between why not like, billions of dollars and the shoot was exactly. supposed to be a bitch and he really didn't enjoy doing it just because i think it was just a really tough shoot that he did not enjoy doing too right. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, no i was gonna say i mean i don't know if ridley scott is like um difficult or whatever i don't know about that but yeah this seems like it'd be tough there's a lot of moving pieces to create something like Blade Runner. Yeah. I don't think he has a reputation of like a James Cameron of like being tyrannical on set or anything like that. But I do think that he does kind of, he has a reputation of being a little bit of a perfectionist. Yes. He's very but, technical, but, uh, mm-hmm. but he knows what he's doing. And, um, but yeah, even so it's like shooting predominantly at night, shooting with all these extras and flying cars mm-hmm. and, you know, crazy costumes and all that stuff. It's just gonna gonna be grueling. Pete, do we want? Or yes. I don't know where the conversation is going, but do we want to talk a little bit about where we when we first watched this movie? We Pete, we do you have can. Memories? You can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Do you have first? Do you have memories of first watching this? I don't think I've ever asked you that. No, I I feel like I bought the uh, the VHS of the theatrical release. No, it wasn't the theatrical release. It was the first kind of recut the first recut in the early 90s okay yeah i bought that on vhs in my like i'm going to tower records and buying a bunch of movies days Mm -hmm. and i just knew that it was important it always had a a a reputation uh now at this point i'm in high school late high school early college and it had a reputation for being just kind of like you need to see this movie it's important sci-fi if you like sci-fi uh, you know, it's it's cool. It had a reputation for being just very cool. And I was just like, okay, I will buy this movie, sight unseen, watch it, and I'm going to fall in love with it. I always did have a little bit of trouble with the pacing. Visually, I always knew that this fucking movie is like, it was like nothing I'd ever seen oh, yeah. before. And I was just immediately like, holy shit, this is so fucking cool. And then not long after that, we get we get the fifth element. And I was mm-hmm. like... And I appreciated it. I know at the time a lot of people were kind of off and on with the fifth element. Some people I, thought I it have was kind of mixed feelings about corny the fifth element myself. or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I mean, at the time I was like, I'm a defender. I love it. Yeah. I, am t- such a I mean, now I think 
nowadays, everybody, nowadays it has a really great reputation because people grew up with it and people who were kids when it came out are now adults and they're just like, it's the best movie ever to define my childhood. But being a teenager or being like a young adult at the time and being into film, there was a lot of people who were just like, what in the Blade Runner wannabe nonsense is this? Because it was bright and sunny. You know, it was like bright colors and all this stuff. But to me, I was like, give me all of this shit. Give me the Jean-Paul Gaultier, sexy ladies working at the McDonald's drive-thru. I don't give a fuck. I'm here. And the stewardesses. (laughs) I can't stop the stewardesses. I swear to God, like this is so good. Everybody in the fifth element is a, is a, is a supermodel and I'm okay with that. <laughs> I don't have a problem <laughs> with every background character being, being a runway model. And that is like a fact. It's not even an exaggeration. No, Everybody seriously. They all are. No, model. really. They all are. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and no, I, but and yeah, I'm totally. Okay with it. But you know what? Something about Blade Runner that Ridley Scott actually kind of takes credit for, but he's like, you know, if you, when you watch Blade Runner and you watch the scenes of like just culture and things going on, when he goes to the, he goes to a bar to like do some detective work and like track down somebody and he's in like a nightclub and all the women are wearing hats with veils and Rachel has this very severe Joan Crawford look yep. mm-hmm. and all of that. Ridley Scott's like, you know what was big in the eighties? Fucking shoulder pads. pads. You know what began to show up on runways? Shoulder pads. Shoulder pads. There you go. I know. Fucking Dynasty 1930s throwback look. Guess who started that shit? Me, bitch. Really, really, Scott is in your face about like my my uh costume design for this movie inspired Dynasty costumes. Costumes done by Michael Kaplan. Really good. Because this is Mm -hmm. 1982, and by later 80s, that's when like all that shit finally trickled down to popular culture and like, you know, so it kind of stands to reason that he could be right. Yeah, <laughs> he could be right. Yeah. I love, I love with him, Ridley Scott uh, too. He was on a round table on one of those like fucking Hollywood reporter or whatever. He did yeah. say they asked him about like, um, what do you think is like one of the greatest movies? And he literally said Muriel's wedding. And I was like, you know what? That's <laughs> right. Ridley Scott. right. You better do it, bitch. Like, yes, I love that. Ridley's career. It's, I mean, he's like Martin Scorsese that he directs all types of movies. I mean, he just doesn't do hard sci-fi. He does action movies. He does, I mean, empowering feminist like road trip movies like Thumb and Louise. So he's kind of all across the board. He does everything. So this is kind of a good segue of True. when I discovered this yes, movie. Please. So this is a little, a little insight of Dorky Scott when I was 16 years old and oh, I was we in love speech him, and though. drama. That I was, I feel like Ridley Scott was kind of my introduction to this movie because he's a director that I think, outside of people clearly like Steven Spielberg or George Lucas, he was kind of the first auteur director that I really latched onto and I sought out all of his movies. And when I was a junior in high school, I did an expository speaking presentation for this. speech and you drama better do it forensics on, you better do it bitch i know that's right <laughs> on the filmography of ridley scott just because i was so like into his movies and i went back to all of his older catalogs and of course blade runner was one and my stepdad is really into film and he was like oh yeah scott blade runner is where it's at i saw that movie when it came out I know that it wasn't very liked at the time, but I thought it was fucking awesome. So I watched it with my stepdad. 
And it's one of those things that even to this day that when I watch this movie, it's still sometimes really hard to take in, but it just looks so fucking cool. And I think that was kind of my experience when I was 16 years old watching it. I would have had to have rented the early 90s um, director's cut. Yeah. Like the the first kind of edition of that. I they think took out the voiceover. I think that it would have had to have been that. And I remember renting it from our local video store that I later worked at. And yeah, like just thinking it was so cool. And then I remember when I was in college, the kind of the version that we all watch now, the director's cut, which we'll talk about later, 2007, that comes out. I remember renting that. But yeah, Ridley Scott, I always kind of have a soft spot for Ridley Scott. Even the even his kind of bad movies like Exodus, Gods and Kings, I'll still sit down and watch it. <laughs> like I am not too good for it. I drug Pete to uh, the last duel a few years ago, opening weekend. Oh, we did see that. And that movie did not do that well. I saw it. I really liked it. And I mean, you got to give this guy credit. I mean, he's in his 80s. He has like Napoleon coming out at the end of the year with Joaquin Phoenix. And he's making Gladiator 2, a movie that he made over 20 years ago. So, I mean, I think that that type of work ethic with a director is just so cool. And yeah, I mean, he completely changed the landscape of science fiction with this movie. I can totally agree with that. I completely say, I see what you're saying for sure. Because like, yeah, like you said, like, I mean, before this, you did have like, obviously like Star Wars became big, you know, and I think a lot of the sci-fi before this, especially was very much like the Reacher feature like alien stuff kind of sort of like in the horror sphere maybe you know and when you get something like this and like close encounters of the third kind and stuff like that you know you're really getting into like this sort of sci-fi bit you know but yeah no and and i'm also somebody who i'm not exactly the biggest of star wars people so i mean talked about on uh the fifth element episode but like also i'm just like okay whatever but yeah i can see myself so more so going to something like maybe a blade runner or maybe like a like a fifth element to where that's like futuristic space stuff to me you know what i mean uh as opposed to this super whatever opera thing you know that is owned by a mouse but anyway i also think probably what got this movie made of course was this wild success of george lucas's star wars and i would imagine that when ridley scott pitched this movie to warner at the time who was probably i don't know like this movie's expensive i know that science fiction is really hot right now but what makes this movie stand out to something like Star Wars? And I think that it's its neo-noir take of that when you really boil down this movie, it's an old cop story. I mean, it's a, it's a noir from the 40s or the, or the 50s. And I think that juxtaposed to this crazy world that it takes place in is really fascinating, too. Yeah, totally. Get, like sure. all of those elements, you get, you get the cop story. You get a detective trying to solve kind of trying to track these people down you get the femme fatale we kind mm-hmm. of have femme fatales in this movie kind too. of a love story a little bit too between her um you know rachel and and harrison ford's character yeah for sure um some of the critical response quotes i pulled so i have three of them i always like reading the bad ones because those are the most fun ones so we have ginger varney from la weekly over your way saying one of the more imaginative and less realized movies of this or any year scott directs it as if he were a dr- actor 
they're about to deliver um, some great conception and never once notices that this mountain of a movie is giving birth to little more than a mouse. That's a lot. Okay, anyway. Um, Ralph Novak from People Magazine states, uh, they all plot along with sometimes dazzling, sometimes boring special effects whiz. Um, and Ford's climactic confrontation with Howard approaches. Instead of tension building, though, things are grinding to a halt, including uh, Howard's gears. And then we have Devin Faraci from Chud who states projected in digital form with booming all-encompassing sound blade runner the final cut which is the one i watched uh is a marvel of technology and dedication as a film it's still the same dead-eyed pretty girl who looks good on your arm but is a real bore over dinner so yeah i mean you know there's people who love and hate it obviously but that's fine that's what we're here for and that's what i'm here to cover but we'll talk a little bit about how did this movie actually come to be now before i move on with what i have do you guys have anything about how did this story come to be that you would want to share before i go into anything about mine um i mean i just think that it's it's so noteworthy that Ridley Scott pulled in the people that he did to create this movie mm-hmm. using um, these people that are like referred to as like futurists to, to come up with the look of it, you know, and to design the, you know, this, all those like downtown LA street scenes. It's like they were, they built all that. Yeah. Like in a, on a, on a lot in, in the UK, you know? Um, and so he just brought in the right people, um, brought in people that were visionary like him, you know, coming from, uh, commercial directing. And I mean, he did the, he did the Apple 1984, like iconic commercial, you know what I mean? Like, so just the fact that he brought in all of these people, Douglas, Trumbull, Douglas Trumbull, you know, mm-hmm. science and, fiction icon. Yeah. Uh, to, to create this world with him was, was, I think just, you know, just kind of part of the legacy of just how, um, the right people were brought in to create, to create it and give it this look that it, it doesn't look like a Roger Corman movie, you mm-hmm. know? And it's like, I love Roger Corman movies. I love, of course, shitty, you know, seventies and eighties, Roger Corman sci-fi battle beyond the stars is like a favorite, but battle beyond the stars looks like trash. Like, especially compared to, this, of course you know? it does. Yeah, the there's no, Star Wars there's no space mm-hmm. battles in this movie, but it's still, there's still flying cars. <laughs> I would imagine that probably with Warner Brothers at the time, it was probably we need something to compete with Star Wars over at Fox and Return of the Jedi was about to come out. Empire was probably being made as they were developing this movie. And I think Warner just wanted in on that and they wanted probably something different, probably not quite what they expected with Ridley Scott's vision, because I know that this movie was sort of taken away with them of how they cut the end of this movie. But I think that it was just kind of, it was to compete with the market with star Wars. And what I think is remarkable about blade runner is that you cannot really compare it with George Lucas at all, which I I think is really cool. It's like both movies have a very different lived in science fiction feel. And they're just sort of, I mean, that's what makes star Wars such an interesting movie is that that's a movie that it's, universe feels very lived in it feels very like rich and blade runners the same way but they're two very different movies so that's what i kind of think is like how did this movie end up getting made yeah yeah i guess so yeah i was also talking about just the inception of it but i love your guys's thoughts on it too um did you also know that with battle beyond the stars did you know that a young kathy griffin is in there 
like as one of the extras <laughs> on like the planet. You can find a photo of her. You can. It's, she's on there. Mm-hmm. Like I just think that's so funny. And she mentioned it in her book. She was like, "Yeah, I was in." Y'all ever see Fade to Black? You ever see that? Fade to Black. Oh, I don't know. You never watched it? Have, it's called Fade to Black. Yeah. So this is a horror movie yeah. uh, from the eighties. Okay, and it's the, and you've seen we- the It miniseries from ABC, right? Oh, the mm-hmm. It miniseries. I was like, yeah. Why didn't hear so the guy, yeah, yeah, one of the guys in that, he plays uh, a young guy who is obsessed with horror movies. And he's like kind of this put upon bullied guy a little bit. And he goes and kills these people and he dresses up like different horror movie characters. And, uh, there's a whole thing at the end of the movie where he like, uh, King Kong wise, like, uh, falls off of Grauman's Chinese Theater. Very much an LA movie. You might as well like it if you are oddly live there. Um, but apparently Kathy Griffin is also in there too as an extra because she talked about how she was in that. That'll be on the stars. Stuff like that as an extra, which I thought was kind of fun. But uh, yeah, go watch Fade to Black, everybody. Um, it's on Shutter, and yeah, you can find it. And from, from it. There he is. Yeah. There you go. So he's been in other stuff, but yeah, he's good. Also, Joanna Cassidy is on my screen right now with her tits out, and I'm here for it and love it. This is great. Fully tits out this mm-hmm. entire scene. I'm like, all Bully. right. <laughs> this is great. But anyway, so a little bit of the the background of this. So um interested in adapting Philip K. Dick's novel, Do Androids Dream of Electronic Sheep? Um, so electric Martin sheep. Scorsese, yes. Uh, electric Sheep, you're right. Um, anyway, so Martin Scorsese was actually interested in filming this, but he never optioned it. And really other people were like interested in maybe making something out of this. Um, I don't really know the book, to be honest. I don't know how like accurate it is to the book. Yeah, probably. But yeah, so sort of the main character of the book. Yes, Deckard is the main character, but it's just right. Different. It's just yeah, it's just different. Right, right. Uh, But the screenplay by Hampton Fancher was optioned in nineteen seventy-seven. So the producer Michael Dealey he became interested in this draft of the script, um, and he convinced Ridley Scott to actually film this. So Scott had previously declined this, but after he left the slow production of Dune, because I guess he was supposed to do that before, you know, David Lynch got in there. Um, But he wanted a faster-paced project to kind of take his mind off of the fact that he just lost his brother, apparently. So he was like, all right, like, let me go and do something a little bit more quick. Whereas Dune's like this... plus hour fucking thing you know what i mean so he joined the project in 1980 and he managed to uh pretty much get a little bit more money uh from the studio uh and yeah like this script focused more on like the environmental issues less on the issues of humanity and religion that were covered like in the book um and scott wanted to change some stuff as well so yeah i mean you know that all happened with there and then they then ended up going to uh, what was called the Lad Company, which was a part of, uh, Warner Brothers, uh, which if you don't know, in the beginning of this movie, literally there's like this whole tree that comes up and it's like this electronic tree and it's the Lad Company's logo, which I was like, is this part of the movie? Like, what the fuck? But anyway, so yeah, they brought, uh, they secured financing for this and brought it to them and were like, Hey, let's do this. And also this is the Lad Company, which is an American company, but it was also done by, Sir, uh, Sir Run run shaw which is a hong kong um production company so technically this is a co-production between america and hong kong which is also maybe why there is this little bit of a asian influence in there too because it's also being produced by an asian country 
which I thought was kind of interesting. But yeah, so the author, though, Philip K. Dick, became concerned that no one had informed him that they were making a movie about his book, pretty much. Uh, so he criticized an early version of this script. And even though that guy died after this release pretty soon after, he was apparently pleased by the rewritten script and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I guess the, the author of the book wasn't really all that keen on it being made without his knowledge. But I guess he warmed up after he saw, like, oh, okay, I guess this is, like, okay. I guess you kind of get a little bit of what I'm trying to say, but you're doing your own that, thing with it. I know that he was really into the casting of Harrison Ford as Decker, sure. too. That was one of the things that he really approved of. Ford also says, though, in the early 90s, he says, Blade Runner is not one of my favorites. I tangled with Ridley. You kind of mentioned that a little bit, too, that like he wasn't exactly keen on it. But he said when we started shooting, it was tactfully agreed that the version of the film that we agreed upon was the version without voiceover narration. Um, and he said it was a fucking nightmare. And he thought that the film had worked without narration, which I guess is a part of these... um cuts that they would have as well since again literally this whole movie has like five different versions of it like it's crazy let's you know that gives us a little bit of like how did this movie actually literally come to be but let's talk a little bit about just like do you guys have anything about like the filming or the casting of this of like how did they come to get on harrison ford and rutger hauer to play these like main characters of it or anything like that well i know that rutger hauer was probably a personal choice from ridley scott just because I think that he had just probably... He saw him in his Danish movies. He saw him in his Danish movies that mm-hmm. he had made with Paul Verhoeven, which if you have never seen the Danish Paul Verhoeven movies They're like Turkish Delight, wild. they are oh my God. wild. You see every single inch of Rucker Hauer's body in Turkish Delight, and it is crazy. Rucker yeah. Hauer, I mean, what just a screen presence in this movie. He's so, like, his body at the end, at that at that end fight scene... Of just, you just see how jacked he is. <laughs> just like running after Harrison Ford. Uh, Rucker Howard in this movie, I always, as a, as a teenager, as a young guy, I was like, sometimes he looks great. Sometimes it looks really weird. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like the bleach blonde hair, I think, especially for 1982, like punk is kind of emerging into like popular culture. And for, I mean, Rucker Howard is, uh, is he um is he dutch is he from yeah, holland he's, he's from he's from um, he's dutch mm-hmm. yeah, he's so European. i mean he's this, like scandinavian uh guy so it's like for him to be like blonde is is one thing but for him to be you know bleach blonde like this platinum that's a very like early 80s like punk influenced mm-hmm. look and like, a, and a lot of the you know the culture at large is not you know accustomed to see nowadays you know whatever nowadays People look crazy and no one thinks twice, bats an eye. But I mean, for, you know, the American public to see this man who, uh, is not a movie star in the States, mm. you know, play this role and look this way and he looks absolutely insane. Um, Daryl Hannah tells a story about auditioning for Pris and it was told to her that the character is a robot and that this is a science fiction movie. And she said that she was kind of concerned about how to go to the audition and to present herself and she was into like punk music as well so she did a very like punk look she said she liked adamant and you know this like new romantic scene and so she drew a big black line across her eyes like adamant 
would do and very like native american inspired and like ratted out her hair and tore up her clothes and went in in a very like punk she's like this is the future this is a Mm -hmm. robot from the future and she said she went in and all the girls had like glitter makeup and star earrings and their hair was crimped in this very early 80s idea of what a robot should look like doing a very like mega made like dot matrix kind of a thing and she was like what the fuck did i just walk into and i mean ultimately she got the part you know the girls with the like glitter eyeliner and like you know blue lipstick didn't quite didn't quite fit the idea of what rutger Hauer was doing and when they saw her uh daryl hannah's like what 510 511 yeah she's a statuesque woman you know and they were like, okay, what do you got? What can you do? And she's like, I know gymnastics. Yeah, I can do backflips. I can do some backflips. Mm-hmm, and they're exactly. like, oh, this bitch. And then they used it, you know? And so... Um, yeah, why not? It's great. Movie. Yeah, Pris mm-hmm. is such a crazy character. Because she's another one where it's like, it's Sarah Hannah. So obviously she looks really good and really cool. But that wig is insane. Yeah. And it just gets more and more crazy as mm-hmm. the movie goes along and finally oh, it's wild in her confrontation at the very end it is like completely electrocuted phyllis diller like out of control yeah so uh, one, of my, one of my favorite things about this movie is the real life locations that they flipped that they made yes. to los angeles in 2019 and whenever pete and i walk the precinct we walk right where daryl hannah is introduced and I oh, always think that. of it. So whenever we walk down Broadway, like, right when we walk down Broadway, because you are Pris Scott, you specifically are just I like walking. That, I mean the pre the precinct, which is a big gay bar here in LA. Um, they're doing all the drag con stuff this weekend. As a matter of as we're recording this, um, that's like headquarters for all the girls. To all the dolls are doing all the drag con stuff at precinct. It is on Broadway and Fourth, the Bradbury Building where JF Sebastian. And Daryl Hannah and all that, all that shit goes down is on Broadway and third. Mm-hmm. It's a block away. It's right in the corner. And the building, the exterior is there and the interior looks, the same. I mean, minus the trash. There's just, uh, there's just a, a subway sandwiches at the bottom and of they, the first floor. And they put up these really <laughs> cool giant columns right yeah. out front, which I love. Yeah. And you kind of see those similar columns and Ridley Scott's legend too. So the, the guy has a thing for columns. <laughs> look, at the column. columns. look at these columns. But yeah, I always think of <laughs> that really sad shot of Daryl Hannah getting underneath her little bed of trash, like a little homeless. <laughs> I always think of that scene. when <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really sure how Rachel uh, came to be, came to be in the, for, uh, but sean young was very hot at the time you know uh she was in dune was she the zendaya of the 82 i don't know (laughs) but you know she was in Dune. she played the role i don't really know what work Um, she had before blade runner too yeah but she was just a very she just ultimately became a very big genre actress of the early 80s um oh she was in stripes with with bill murray oh yeah breakout there she was just walking down the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Daryl Hannah, you have to hand it to her. We always are not Daryl Hannah. I mean, also Daryl Hannah. She has a lot of science fiction street cred. But Sean Young, I mean, yeah. Blade Runner, Dune, Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend. The Lost Dinosaur. A movie that I used to love when I was a kid. But yeah, I mean, talk all the shit that you want about Sean Young. Those are some pretty iconic roles. Yeah. And it's also a thing, too, as well. Like, people want to bring Sean Young with, like, oh, how dare they do that to her at the end of Ace Ventura? And I'm like, 
sorry guys like i'm sorry it's a transphobic narrative a little bit like at the ending but i mean she's fabulous like she's amazing like but yeah i mean it's like uh, but who knows anyway do you want to hear about some of the people who were going to be cast in this movie or they were thought to be cast sure as like decker gene hackman that queen what really okay nope i mean i guess i guess right sean connery I don't know. Jack Nicholson. I don't know either. Jack Nicholson. So that would have been fun if like he and Joe Turkel were in this together, but that didn't work out. But Jack Nicholson, I I, maybe. It's kind of a science fiction. It's kind of a science fiction Chinatown. So I get it. See why they were. Yeah. Maybe a little. Paul Newman. Yeah, maybe Paul Newman. It's fun. Mm -hmm. Clint Eastwood. I could have maybe seen that. It could have worked. Maybe. Perhaps. Like him and uh, him and, uh, and Dustin Hoffman too was another one I think. All three of these men—Harrison Ford, Clint Eastwood, and like Dustin Hoffman—they all remind me of each other. So I'm just like, oh, they're all the same person, pretty much. Uh, anyway, Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones could have worked. He's mm-hmm. angry. Yeah. Schwarzenegger, but I think this would have been—I don't know, man. This is like right around T- Terminator, right? Like maybe it's two years before Terminator. Well, being unproven as an actor speaking English lines that were not being overdubbed by Mm -hmm. a different actor. So that would have been Peter Peter Falk was another one. Columbo. Uh, Yes, Columbo. He would have been too old, though. I mean, really. But I mean, he is supposed to be this detective, so you could age him up a little bit. I'm also seeing Harrison Ford with his shirt off right now, and that's also fun to look at, too. This is great. I mean, this is, uh, he got that Jack body for Indiana Jones, especially. Yes, he did. Body by Jake. Uh, Nick Nolte before his face changed. Okay, I mean, there maybe. was a time that Nick Nolte was like People's Sexiest Man Alive of 91. I know. He was. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Al Pacino. Mm, yeah, I don't know. Now they're just naming every single actor yeah. that was. I alive. know. And then Burt Reynolds, which I would have thought would have been hilarious. Mr. Burt like, really? Reynolds is, as oh Decker. I mean, I, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> He's one of our greatest living actors, Pete. Yeah, I don't know about that. Sure, exactly. <laughs> uh, Debbie Harry actually was uh, offered the role of Pris. Sure. Uh, listen, uh, sure. Why not? Let's go with it. And then also, of course, we have, like we said, you know, Joanna Cassidy's in here as Zora, who's like a stripper slash like killer, you know, replicant or whatever. Just fun. But yeah, you know, all these different people. Let me see if there's anything about the filming of this movie. Or do you all have anything about like any of the music in it? I know the music's kind of a big deal in this movie, too. I mean, people it's, love Vangelis. The it's Vangelis. It's, um, I think it's the, I don't know if it's the same year or the year before, but they, uh, they did the score for Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire is very like, you know, it's, it's iconic film music. Uh, it's Vangelis was a late seventies progressive rock instrumental artist. So it's not like that it, it was like film, uh, film score territory so it was mm-hmm. kind of like okay let's bring in this guy yeah. and so he did all the synthesized music the score is so moody uh we just bought it on vinyl a couple yeah. of months we ago. own it on vinyl um bunch of hipsters i love you for it, it though it's really fun <laughs> to listen to because 
it's like it's a lot of this really moody like synthesizer stuff but then there's like some weird like 30s like old-timey radio stuff thrown in then in the mix in there yeah the score is 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 pretty kooky but it just adds to the whole like uh vibe like we said of of the film and just this very dark and moody kind of like i don't know you're you're going out to like the grimy underworld of like agreed yeah i i love like a um i mean thomas newman's like a really good like score person john williams obviously and all that you know who i really enjoy who we just covered it a couple weeks ago because we did don't tell mom the babysitter's dad of course but david newman i love his scores like his newman dynasty oh like they're so good and so i guess him and thomas are like somehow related right i guess they're brothers they're, or some shit they're all really anyone that is a newman that composes anything movies randy newman thomas newman david newman they're all really yeah which is fine because they're all so good like this did the eight like he did the 80s like with heathers don't tell mom uh bill and ted all that and then thomas newman did a really good job because he did like the angels in america soundtrack which is fucking great you know on the hbo miniseries so all right Let's do a little something different on the show. So let's give like a baseline plot summary of this movie because for those in the not in the know, this movie has like different versions to it. So I want to give like a baseline of like, here's what the movie is uh, actually about. And, you know, Blade Runner for dummies, I guess. Not that any of you are dummies, but you know, just a little something. And then we can kind of talk about the different versions of this movie and how they all kind of differ a little bit. Sounds good. Sure. Mm-hmm. So in your own words, because I've only watched this movie once and I have it currently playing in the background with Sean Young's hair out, which again, goals, but in your own words, what is this movie about? What happens in Blade sure. Runner for the, me, the uninitiated? Take this one. Yeah. You're, um, I think Rick I think Deckard is a, uh, a cop in LA uh, it's the year 2019, but it's 2019 from 1982's point of view. So we have no cell phones. We have no wireless technology. We have Nothing a very, no, we have a very analog version of tech. Um, he's a retired cop and he's specifically a retired blade runner. A blade runner is a cop who their sole job is to go out and hunt down and retire, which means murder unalive, uh, replicants replicants are replicants are robots that have been manufactured by people to look identical to people but they've essentially become a slave kind of like cast made specifically in our, in by our society. the made specifically by the Tyrell they Corporation. They were made by the Tyrell Corporation. I, one corporation. I can also only imagine and here's the thing too. Um I love your use of the word robot. Um yeah. because that just shows that you are a Futurama fan and I appreciate that and love that about yeah. you. Anyway, continue. So uh the thing is they are the replicants they have a four year lifespan. After four years, they will shut down and cease to be. But the thing is, for some unknown reason, the Terrell Corporation has created them with consciousness mm-hmm. and a sense of self and a self awareness, sentience. And so I think this brings up a lot of other like weird conversations, which it's like, yeah, we created them to like do our labor. But it's like you also gave them 
consciousness and self-awareness and you're so shocked like, and you're shocked yeah, that they're like that they don't want to die after four years that they don't want to die and they are and just like, be like rebelling against all of this yeah, and just mm-hmm. live on some shitty moon or like some shitty like you know freight you know spaceship like mining ore or whatever they're doing so there has been a group of replicants there are uh i think they said there were five or six of them that escaped they're like mining ship. They made their way to Earth. They killed a couple of people and they're on their way to find Tyrell to force him to extend their lives. And uh, the cops go to, they find Deckard and they're like, we need you to retire these replicants. And he's like, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. And they're like, too bad. Doesn't matter. You have to do it. And so he's got to go and find these replicants. In the process, he finds, he goes to the Terrell Corporation, meets Mr. Terrell. Mm-hmm. He does the cool test to see if you're a replicant. Yep. Uh, Love he, the test. He meets Rachel, who he finds out is a replicant. She doesn't know it yet. Pete, do you like our owl? Do you like our owl? <laughs> Yeah, of course, of course it is. is. I love, I love Sean Young delivering that line. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, she's great. So now we find out that Tyrell can make a replicant that does not know that it's a replicant and has been implanted with false memories. Why? Who knows? (laughs) And so now to torture them with that sentience you were just talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Existentialism. So now Deckard is off to uh, find and retire the rest of the replicants. And the main one is uh, Roy Batty, played by Rector Hauer, who is like, I guess he's the smartest of the ones that are left alive. And it's just Deckard's adventures through dirty future L.A., trying to track down and kill these replicants for wanting to be alive longer. <laughs> and, you know, when we're watching it, we're just like, God, what did you want to Cassidy do? Jeez, right. Jeez Louise. <laughs> like, fuck, man. She just has her I, little, I don't know. She just has her little girly show at this, like, yeah. cyberpunk bar with her, with her, with her replicant python. Jeez Louise. Like, that's kind of <laughs> rude. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of rough. It kind of brings up these questions of, like, you know, the other thing about these, the replicants is that they are so well designed. They have skin and blood and bones. They have, they have to do like hardcore tests on the, the void comp test is a visual stimulus test and it's questions and base. It's kind of like a lie detector kind of a test situation where he's taking notes and it takes all these questions to, to do it, but also they can do tests on their on their bones or their bone marrow or whatever to, to find out but otherwise if you just look at, at one you wouldn't know it was a replicant mm-hmm. you know they just have super strength and immune to pain and things like that but you couldn't tell just by like and that that's the level of like sophistication that these that these robots have so they're not even really robots you know by scientific standards you you really shouldn't call them robots. Yeah, because all of their insides are replicant from human organs, yes. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're genetically... And they go into stuff like that. We haven't even talked about Blade Runner 2029. But they, they go <laughs> we'll, into we'll a talk lot a little bit about that. that. Yeah. yeah. With the Jared Leto character, yeah, yeah. too. So, uh, you know, he Deckard finds Rachel, this, this female replicant that doesn't know she's a replicant. He knows this. And ultimately, does he tell her? Yeah. Yeah, he tells her. Mm-hmm. But the thing is he still falls in love with her and the, that's where the big changes to this movie and the different versions are. The one big change is the voiceover versus no voiceover. 
Mm-hmm. That was really only the theatrical release and the very first home video release came with the voiceover. And it doesn't really doesn't really add a lot. Add anything I mean, it. it's kind of entertaining to hear Harrison Ford's checked out delivery that you can tell that they got Harrison in the sound booth and he yeah. did not want to be there. Yeah. He was yeah. tired as hell, man. He was being Harrison Ford. You know, listen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's the the first version I got was minus the voiceover, but I think right. I don't remember what ending it had. I want to say that my ending was the shots from The Shining, where you see driving off into the forest. Them driving off into the forest. Did you know that uh, they got? I didn't know uh, that they got um, outtakes from Stanley Kubrick's The Shining when they when it's uh, Jack and his family driving uh-huh. up to the Overlook. I mean, it's it's Glacier National Park, and that's where they shot it in Montana. So that's why I always kind of knew that. That's the going to the Sun Highway. And, yeah, fun fact uh, for everyone. Fun fact for everybody. Uh, this gentleman here is from Montana, so and he'll let you know about it. So yeah, yeah. I always <laughs> let people know about that. But yeah, and they they cut in outtakes of that didn't make it into the movie. I, I think that. that was the first version that I watched. Yeah, my one that I watched because I've only watched the one on HBO uh, is the final cut. So that's the, <laughs> the end one that where. You- mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the one where they, uh, him and Rachel, Decker and Rachel, they escape out and they have the unicorn thing. Um, mm-hmm. and that's how it ends in my version. But anyway, okay. without further ado, though, let's move on to some of these other prints that we had. So thank you for your plot summary, Scott. Um, uh, it was very Pete. good. Pete. <laughs> it was really Thanks. good. Like, that was a very right? good. Those are good. Those are very good TV guide synopsis. <laughs> literally, literally the quickest plot summary I've ever done on my show because. Uh, who whether people like the beat to beat ones or whatever that's fine but uh yeah this movie is just like and like i was saying earlier and like you said offline before like this movie is so much about the vibes and just like how influential it was whereas the story i mean like you could dig into it but it's more interesting to talk about the fact that this movie's had like five different endings and the, anyway. the other the other thing uh uh on top of the different endings is the different interpretations of the movie that we have now yes because the big question is is deckard himself a replicant Mm -hmm. does deckard have edward james almost character his memories implanted in him to become a good blade runner because gaff walks with a limp and can't do his job anymore you know there's does deckard know he's a replicant you know all these questions are like out there to this day like you know, still unanswered, still kind of people arguing about. And so it's like, that's why this movie is so much more than just like, and then this happens because exactly. <laughs> yes, no, it's true. Happen, a lot to cover, um, you know? Yeah. So the first one that I know of, um, from my list I have is the work print version, which was shown to mm-hmm. audiences in Denver and Dallas in 82. Um, it was also seen in 90 and 91 in Los Angeles and San Francisco as an original director's cut without the approval of Ridley Scott. So this, uh, had some negative responses to it and there were positive responses to it in 90 to 91. So when it first came out, people were like, what the fuck is this? And then as time went on, they're like, oh, okay, this is like, all right, I guess. But this version was also re-released as part of the 2007 big, like ultimate edition that they did. But again, uh, they still say the result of this was rough. So the first one was the work print of this was like, here you go right so that's the first 
Then you have the San Diego sneak preview. This was only shown one time in 1982. And this is pretty much like the U.S. Uh, theatrical version, except that it has three additional scenes that were not in it before. And these are not a part of the final cut um, version. And this includes a scene introducing Batty in a video phone booth. Um, a shot of Deckard reloading his gun after Batty breaks his fingers. Um which he does like near the end of the movie, I think. And then a scene where Deckard and Rachel ride into the sunset. So that's the second one that only people in San Diego in 1982 saw, which again, it wasn't part of the final cut or anything. I'm sure it's on some sort of special features or something. Then we get into the 82 us theatrical release, which is, this is what everyone saw in the theaters in 1982 Um, included the happy ending, as well as the voiceover that you guys are talking about. Um, as well so yeah do you guys have anything to talk about when it comes to the u.s theatrical release of anything that you want to add i mean yeah like we said the voiceovers doesn't really add too much um it kind of spells some things out but i feel like if you're if you're paying attention you'll kind of get that or if you see on multiple viewings you'll get those things without the without the voiceover and then the happy ending like you said is after after decker retires all the replicants he goes home to his crazy Franklin Wright apartment in the sky and Rachel is there. They meet and he's like, okay, let's get the hell out of here. And mm-hmm. they get in the car in his weird little sci-fi car and just drive through the forest in the distance. Mm-hmm. And she's talking to him in the car. There's a couple of lines of dialogue, not a lot. And she's just like, she knows she's a replicant at this point. She knows the the memories are not hers. And I think she asks him, like, did we know each other? Mm-hmm. Did we know each other before? I think she asks. And then I think he says yes. And then it just, like, cuts to them, like, driving, like, smiling. And then, like, you, the, there's, like, aerial footage of them driving down the highway. And then that's it. Yeah. I don't know how that's any happier than what we get in the later endings and the final cut endings. It's just right before they get into the car, the elevator doors close. Yeah. And then that's pretty much. I mean, you don't, you don't need the car stuff, but I don't think you need the car stuff. And that's kind of what Ridley Scott came to the conclusion of when he did the 2007 cut, which I mean, for all intents and purposes, that's Blade Runner. Yeah. Like, and ask any sort of fan of this movie. Yeah. They'll cite the 2007. The, the final cut is where we need to really get into the differences and and the additions Mm -hmm. and not, and right, right. Not not so much the subtractions uh, of what they took out, but what they added in. Yeah, true. So then after this, though, you have the international theatrical release, which is the same year. It has more violent scenes in there than the U.S. theatrical cut because the Europeans and international people can take it more, I guess. So that was that. U.S. broadcast version, so that was shown on TV. Obviously, just had like the titties and profanity taken out of it, pretty much. And then we will talk about the director's cut. I guess we can talk a little bit about that. But let's talk about this 2007 cut you guys are talking about, which technically I believe is referred to as the final cut. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, the final yep. cut. yeah, absolutely. So we'll um, talk a little bit about that. By, he says it's his best version of the movie. And the one that he's most proud of. Yeah. And I think that's the only one you need to watch. Yeah. If you've never seen it, it's not like I got to watch the original theatrical because that's the first version. Don't even worry about it. Like, yeah, just watch <laughs> it. Was, just watch the final yeah, cut. It was taken away from him at, at that point. 
So yeah, but the 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 final cut now it looks great. It's beautiful. It's like it's if you have HBO Max, you know, and you're watching it on a nice TV, it's a beautiful rent. Uh, it's a beautiful cut of the movie. It's in 4K, and you get all the cool unicorn shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you all that familiar with with the unicorn stuff of the origami unicorn? No, I don't know what it means. Okay. Please tell so, me. So kind of midway <laughs> through the movie, Decker has this dream, or he's thinking about this vision of this of this unicorn and it's kind of like storybook unicorn going through the forest and why is that there and then you start to see at the end especially when he picks up the origami unicorn and the edward jordan's almost character pete you were saying so throughout the movie this character uh that edward james almost plays his name is gaff gaff is another blade runner Mm-hmm. He did the same job as Deckard. He's the one that finds Deckard at the beginning and says, you need to go see the captain. And he's there with him as he's doing detective work. Gaff is, he's got a limp. He's got a cane. He walks very, very slow. What's really kind of interesting is that he's speaking a different language. Mm-hmm. He's not speaking Chinese. He's speaking what they're calling in the movie city speak, which is kind of like, what was that made up language that was like kind of based in Navajo or whatever? Esperanto. It's kind of like Esperanto, okay. but it's not Esperanto. It was developed for the movie. It's called city speak. And so he's speaking this weird thing at the beginning and then Deckard's responding in English. Gaff's big thing is that in all the scenes he's in, whatever happens in the scene, he he makes a little origami yeah. piece and drops it there. So when Deckard is talking to the, the police chief and the chief is saying, you got to go back out there. And Deckard's like, I'm retired. I'm not going back. You see Gaff picks a little piece of paper out of an ashtray. And then it's he makes a little origami chicken. And it's like, oh, calling him like chicken. Deckard's scared yep. to go back mm-hmm. to work. Then, like, he sees something else. Or I think it's when he first is looking at. Oh, I forget when he does it. I think he finds the pictures of Zora. He makes a little man out of a matchstick. Yeah, and the man's got like like a heart on the, the little matchstick man has a dick. If you see, if you like, watch closely. And then later on in the movie, when he goes back to his apartment and finds Rachel. Gaff has been there, and when Rachel leaves, she kind of knocks something over, and it's a little origami unicorn. And he picks it up off the ground, and he sees that it's a unicorn, mm-hmm. and he kind of thinks back to the daydream that he had yeah. earlier in the movie. And the thing is, the question is, did Gaff know that he had a daydream about a unicorn, and how would Gaff have known mm-hmm. about the daydream? And people, some theories are that Gaff knew because it was his daydream about the unicorn. And that's why Gaff is so kind of like not friendly with Deckard. Because one one fan theory is that Gaff was the like number one Blade Runner in LA and that something happened and he was injured. And now he can't quite really do his job anymore. He's got this cane, he's got this limp. And so they've taken his memories of retiring replicants implanted them into the Deckard replicant so that he would have this knowledge of how to be the best blade runner in town and to go off and now do his job. And so that's why Gaff is so like kind of distant with him because he's mad that he's taken Mm -hmm. his career away from him. And so he's leaves these little origami things to to taunt him. And so he left the unicorn saying kind of like, I know what you are, right? Is that real? I don't know. (laughs) Also all of the, all of the, human characters in this movie that aren't replicants there's something wrong with them tyrell has his big glasses so he has poor eyesight there's the who's the actor 
from from the Bradbury that finds oh yeah jf sebastian jf sebastian has the weird aging he's, thing he's got methuselah he's got mm-hmm. methuselah syndrome his character is 25 years old but he's like got wrinkles and he looks like an old man and pris is like what's wrong with you mm-hmm. so like all of these human characters there's just something they're afflicted with they're something. afflicted with something and all of the replicants are just sort of they're perfect humans they're built for a job so yeah. they're they're physically kind of like you know better than mm-hmm. than more more human than humans what mr terrell says uh so um so that's another thing and then the, the other big clue is the the eye reflections yeah that you know like i don't know if you have like a cat or a dog and sometimes when you see like of course i have a little kitty right here light reflecting right in their eyes they get that thing be in the back of their eye where you can see that crazy reflection you know they do and it with like, everyone oh my God, they're demons yeah, yeah. So they do it with they do it with all the replicants in the movie. Even he, the even the owl. Even the owl. Yep. They do it with Deckard in the scene. So yes, they can, do. Can see, so you're like, can see the glow in his eyes. So, yeah. So it's like, okay, well, that right there to me says he is a replicant. But yeah. I don't know. It's still ambiguous. They still mm-hmm. never spell it out in the movie that yes, he is. Other than these context clues of the you know the reflection in his in his eyes and in in the dreams um but also the the you know gaff making the unicorn origami could be a coincidence i don't know mm-hmm. he could have deckard could have told him about just these dreams that he had you know are there replicant unicorns out there somewhere because all the animals are extinct and they're making these replicant animals like the owl and the snake and all that when you see these shots of the city Sometimes like there's a shot and there's a guy that just has like a falcon on his arm. Mm-hmm. And then there's a shot of just somebody like pulling a pulling like a a llama. And you're like, what the fuck? They're just in the middle of the city and people have these crazy animals. But it's that's another context clue. That's from the book, is that animals are extinct and they're a status symbol now. Yeah. It's like having a Tesla is like, I got a fucking llama. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> I got this, I got I this, can, I got this cool great horn. Great horn owl. Great horn owl. I can afford yep. it. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, of course, Tyrell can afford it. He makes them, but like for just average people to have, you know, your, your girly show, but I've also have a snake in my girly show. It's like, okay, that's an exactly of why she's cool, you know, because these are, these are status symbols and, and these are just other little context clues that are thrown in there and not explicitly spelled out. So that just kind of like adds to like the lore of like, of this movie and the mythology that's mm-hmm. in there and not having to know the, 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 the source material, but just kind of calling it from multiple watchings of just how layered. This, yeah. It's so, it's is. so beautifully layered. Like you you, I pick up on something different each time. And it's also one of those movies that sometimes it's main story. I get this with a lot of movies that I'll forget sometimes minor plot details. So when I'm watching it, it's like I'm watching it for the first time. Just yeah. because the movie is so, uh, it's so beautifully layered. Um, it's something that Blade Runner 2049, which we can talk a little bit about, carries yes, over really yes. well. It still keeps that ambiguous quality about it that they never specifically say that Decker is a replicant. Yeah. And kind of that movie itself is also very well, layered. The, the thing in its about plot. both of these movies is that they present this fully realized world that 
were just kind of plopped into. Mm-hmm. And you as an audience, you're just supposed to keep up. You just have to keep like, up. This world is yep. going. It's moving. It's living. All these people are here. And we're just showing you this episode of what's going on. And there's a, there's a, a little uh, title card at the beginning with some text, you know, not very long. And then, yeah, you're just like, okay, keep up. If you don't, if you're not paying attention, then just watch, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe you'll get it. Maybe you won't, but you know, you're, you're still cool either way. Um, one last thing I want to talk about as far as the different cuts of the movie is when they created the, the final cut, they asked Joanna Cassidy in 2007 to come in for reshoots. There are shots when Zora is um, being retired, when she's running through the city, and especially when, spoiler alert, when she's shot and she her character runs through windows. She runs through glass in like a store or something. And in the previous versions of the movie, it is very clearly a stunt double. I don't think I've ever actually seen um, these versions. The, where it's the stunt double. The, I've got the DVD. We can pull it up. Uh, we, well, I, I guess I, I would have had to on my yeah, VHS you then. Have, yeah, you would have had to. Mm-hmm. The, the wig is bad. The wig is not good. It is like awful. Um, it's like a little right. orphan Annie, little afro. Um, the, they're very, blatant shots of her face and it's like that's not more that's a man maury that is not <laughs> right Joanna exactly at all you know and so they brought her in they put her in a rig on this big rig in in front of a green screen and like had her do all these like you know like spun her around and like some lady in her 40s going. at this point, which is crazy. Joanna Cassidy. Cassidy. 2007 was like in her 50s, I think. I, seriously. So, like, seriously. Yeah. yeah. And they have her in a rig and she's wearing the full, like, green suit, just her face is exposed and, and, and hair because they're completely redoing the hair. So I think it's a full head replacement. So what they did was, yeah, they have, and there's footage of it on the DVD of the, or the Blu-ray, if you buy that too, of the final cut, because they show the behind the scenes of, of her coming in. And she's just like, sure. Yeah, I'll do it, whatever. And so, yeah, so they did full head replacements. So the wig is better. It matches her and there's shots and you're just like, there, there's her face. And mm-hmm. so, so they just dropped those in to just kind of zhuzh it up. She, she, she got her jush. Um, so it we, was probably shots that were really bothering Ridley Scott too. They really bothered me. Really because bothered both were, of you. They yep. were so blatantly not her, you know. And it's just like, okay, they had to. It's it's a hard stunt. She's running to glass, you know. That's a that I is know. A well, she's dying, right? Person, exactly. You know. Yeah. So it's like it's a tough get, and they were not going to ask, of course, Joanna Cassidy to do this, no, no matter how safe it was. But and it was the '80s, so it's like they could only do so much with effects and 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 faking all that stuff so it just it was what it was and it was in the movie and so at the time 2007 they're like okay we can do this joanna cassidy her face it works um and yeah so those are the shots that you see now when you watch the final cut you see with the the face and the head replacement we we got to see this at hollywood forever cemetery in front of an audience and joanna introduced it oh yeah that's right and she's just like i, I don't that. know i don't know what version you're watching but yeah. if it's the <laughs> If it's the 2007 one, that's the one that I had to come back in yeah. for, for reshoots for. It was very cute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God, what a what a goddamn icon. She's Brenda <laughs> Chenoweth's mom. She's Rose from Don't Tell Mom. Like, she's just so fucking great. 
Yeah. I love her. Is she like also, I always, not that I'm just an idiot sometimes, but I also feel like, like, Part of me thinks, like, is she related to David Cassidy from, like, the fucking right? monkeys? I mean, hey. Or is she, like, Katie Cassidy's mom, but she's not? I'm just like, where are all these people? <laughs> can you imagine, can you imagine Joanna Cassidy being Katie Cassidy's mom? That would be so kind. A lot of, although yeah. technically David Cassidy <laughs> is, like, her dad, technically, but whatever. It's fine. Um, so, exactly. But anyway, so wrapping up a little bit, nothing too crazy. I do want to talk about, Blade Runner to one because I have not seen it, but I'd love for you guys to talk about it. Sure. And then also talking a little bit about how has this movie influenced other films and oh. what the legacy it's had, really. And then I think that'll be a yeah. nice little yeah. wrap up to our show. I mean, Blade Runner 2049, surprise, surprise, when it came out in 2017, it did not do that well at the box office just because this is hard sci-fi. That is a very difficult sell for a mainstream audience and you know what i totally get it i totally get if this movie is not your thing because it is very dense and it is i mean some people just don't really are they're not really along for the ride of the movie which is fine and blade runner 2049 is kind of the same exact thing and i think that that movie also kind of is going to get the cult status that the 82 movie had just because I feel like people are kind of ride or die for Blade Runner 2049. I mean, yeah. it won it won a bunch of technical Oscars. It got um its cinematographer Roger Deakins his first Academy Award. I mean, Roger Deakins like icon of the industry. He's shot some huge movies like he works with the Coen brothers a lot and he had never won an Oscar and he won it for Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. Because the movie looks fucking incredible yeah and it's just kind of really interesting of where they pick up the story and the elements that they take with characters like rachel like we didn't really know what the story was going to be is rachel going to be in it are they going to recast rachel oh gagged we and were when she walks gagged. out when uh the jared leto character i think that his his last his, wallace yeah and he kind of takes over the Tyrell Corporation because all the replicants die out and then he's producing more of them. And when he brings out Sean Young, when he brings out Rachel to show Decker, look, we were in the theater gag of this is Sean Young from 1981. We were like throwing pop, like snapping. We were like, whack! Gang out whack, all over the place. Whack. Yes. Well, they- Did you go to the gay theater in your town? Right? No. Did you go see that? Oh, we did. But they, but the thing was, they gooped us. Like, Sean yeah. Young gooped us. She was mm-hmm. like, well, I would have been in it if they asked me to. Like, on social media and stuff. Yeah. So she fully gagged the world. She Boycott was like, the Blade Runner Yeah, she was sequel. fully just like, oh, well, I mean, I would have been a part of it if they wanted me, but clearly they don't because they never called me. And then, like, there we go. We're watching the movie, and I was like, oh, bitch. And yeah, it's really cool. The thing is, for uh, like a a real hard sci-fi nerd like myself, I mean, we're talking like Babylon Five, like nonsense. We're talking Sequest DSV. (laughs) We're you know the Expanse. We're talking this shit that is like boring to people, you know. But for for me, when I sat down when I was a teenager and I was like, what am I going to watch? I was watching the weird, hard sci-fi nonsense, right? And so to see Blade Runner 2049, what I loved so much about it 
was the fact that, okay, it's 2049, but what year was it released? 2017. 2017. 2017. Yep. So it's actually released two years before the first Blade Runner is set. Okay. Blade Runner is set in 2019, right? And it's like, so now this is 2049. So now it's 30 years past the 2019 of 1982. Okay. So it's not our future. It's their future. It's the future of the future of, of the eighties. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they had flying cars already in 2019, but now they're still flying cars. They're, do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it was a future based on their initial retro futurism. What they thought of in the eighties was going to be the future. Now they're spending on that. So it can't be our future. So all the video calls that they took. It doesn't look like what we would think the future of FaceTime or Zoom would look like. It looks like the future of their shitty video calls from 1982. So mm-hmm. all of their screens kind of look like a Kindle Paperwhite, you know, like all of it, like everything was this very analog future. And to me, like a, a sci-fi nerd, I was like, this shit is fucking genius. The mm-hmm. way they expanded on that kind of futurism of, of Sid Mead and, you know, and the people that, that created the future of 1982 Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Um, I really love that. Another big thing that Blade Runner 2049 introduced to a lot of people was uh, one Miss Anna de Armas. Anna de Armas is joy. <laughs> she is yes. Ryan Gosling's character. Ryan Gosling's character is called Kay. And Ryan yeah. Gosling is a replicant. He's a replicant Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. So um, Yeah, he absolutely, yeah. there's no question about there's it. no he question about a, it. He is a replicant. Yeah, they, and he is, he is informed that he is a replicant by the very fierce l- <sighs> lieutenant played by Robin Wright, Robin Wright, who does the most with uh, kind of a nothing character, too. Yeah, she's so fierce in it. But yeah, Ryan Gosling's girlfriend is named Joy, and she is played by Anna Darmus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, you know, this is a future where replicants exist. Right. And he has a girlfriend who is artificial. Mm-hmm. He's a replicant himself. He's like an elaborate hologram. And people can buy this. They they presented in the movie that it's just something that you can buy. There's there's commercials for Anna de Armas in the movie as he's walking down the street. You see these big holograms of like buy yourself what's her name buy joy. buy yourself joy, you know, and she'll come and live with you. And so he does, and he buys it, and she, but she's a hologram. She doesn't exist as a physical. She's not a sex doll. She's not. You know what I mean? She's not Lars and the real girl. She doesn't have like a, a, she just, a, a fleshlight. She just comes and hangs out with you. She just comes and she just hangs out she with you. She keeps you company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's this idea of replicants exist, but now we're doing these holographic versions because there are problems with replicants and they might murder you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> your hologram, you know, what's it going to do? Yeah. Any of those who aren't in the know of Anna de Armas, she is the uh, lady who was nominated for an Oscar and was ripped Blondes. through the raked through the coals for playing Marilyn Monroe in Blonde, which I have not seen. So I'm I like, actually, okay. I actually think she's really good in Blonde. I think Blonde is a weird, underrated movie that I I was kind of into when I watched it, but I went into it preparing to hate it, and I was like, oh, you know what? It's just a weird artsy movie. Yeah, and she has Blade Runner twenty forty nine to fall back on if people really hate her in Blonde. I guess I don't she's know. In, she's in the first Knives Out. Knives Out. Mm-hmm. She's in Knives Out. Oh, cute. First Benoit Blanc mystery. Mm-hmm. Anna de Armas is, is Cuban, and she has 
a natural accent that she speaks with and in most of her movies she's allowed to perform in in uh, with speaking a natural cuban accent which i think is amazing she is beautiful like yeah. her face is like congratulations bitch on this face so it's like a lot of opportunity is granted she is like kryptonite woman. for straight men oh my god they love her mm-hmm. they love her um true, true, i also true. really love wallace's assistant her name is louv oh love yeah that, yeah love that super fierce woman fucking yeah oh my god that character is fierce and scary and i love when she's getting her nails done and she's like doing the she's doing like the like the missiles yeah and she's getting her nails done yeah in that scene yeah it's very total recall but she's just like she's planning some like crazy like people gonna die but she's just getting those nails done she doesn't give a fuck she's like she's fierce she's amazing yeah she's got priorities listen she's a replicant she's great yeah we love her yeah so 2049 i think it's it's a long movie it's very long very long my patience tends to wear with it in the middle too it's like i'm actually i'm really invested at the end just because there's a really great emotional arc with uh deckard and rachel i mean i guess i'll just say the spoiler just because it's a main plot point but sean young's character rachel ends up having a kid it's a it's Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a crazy plot point you you gotta watch to like get to get to the bottom of how it's done and how they present it but you know deckard comes in halfway through the movie and he's living in vegas he's living in Mm -hmm. in the remains of like a remains uh, of las vegas Mm post-apocalyptic las vegas but his his arc and his story is very satisfying at the end of the movie but it is very long Mm -hmm. and uh denis villeneuve you know if you saw dune you know if you saw the other alien one that he did they're very much mood movies vibe movies Mm -hmm. something that are very beautiful to watch but you know if you got your phone out you're gonna miss something you know and and it's okay it's okay if you miss something it's a movie you know just it's visual it's if you don't get it it's okay you don't have to get every little thing but i i recommend it if you really liked blade runner if if you're just like that was weird it's it's even weirder yeah (laughs) so So it doesn't get any weirder from this kids don't worry it does Yeah. (laughs) yeah 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 Totally. Anyway, but love to hear about that. Yeah, well, like what to wrap up a little bit. Like, what is it inspired, and what is the legacy of this movie, and you know, a little bit of that as well. I mean, I would say, had the term cyberpunk even been coined before this movie, I mean, cyberpunk—that's a whole aesthetic. It's movies, video games, cyberpunk, and I mean, Patient Zero is definitely Blade Runner. (laughs) Um, I would just say with art direction and set design for all sorts of movies like Hollywood movies is that having a textured and atmosphere in your set design and art direction, that this is a world that feels very lived in that you could walk down the street and find just as crazy as the story and follow somebody completely different. And they're in the background of this movie. Mm -hmm. Every time we're walking through downtown LA, especially at night, I look up and I'm just like, all right, here we are. Los Angeles 2019. You know, driving through the tunnel, it's this, the Second Street Bridge, that tunnel that he drives through several times in this movie. You can't just help but think of it when you're when you're there. Um a but, lot of different movies do that shot too. A lot of yeah, a lot mm-hmm. of movies use that. So it's an it's an iconic looking tunnel. But I mean, as far as like inspirations, you know, like we said anything from Total Recall the fifth element uh you know television show there's there was an anime 
series of Blade Runner called Black Lotus that was created right before 2049 was released. Ghost in the Shell, of course. Yeah, absolutely. But like you said, all of these things kind of reference each other, Akira and Ghost in the Shell and the Matrix, and they're all pulling from each other and getting little ideas um, to kind of build these new, these new crazy, you know, cyberpunk worlds and oh it's it's no it's it's ludicrous to say that if we didn't have blade runner we would not have the matrix and i come at we will come at me sisters okay listen (laughs) you know it's true like yeah yeah i I love bound so much exactly you'd probably say that too they're like oh yeah if there wasn't any blade runner we would not have made this movie yeah yeah. (laughs) like the work of del toro i mean christopher nolan talks about when doing batman begins and wanting to set batman in a recognizable world i think that he talked about using blade runner as a big inspiration too totally yeah, yeah. um and then there's been like there's netflix series uh altered carbon there is the show that i was talking about bef- uh, earlier now i can't think of the name but it's it's got uh oh now i can't think of the woman that i'm thinking of it's thomas jane is in it it's a it's a amazon prime show uh, yeah uh but yeah just uh, there's there's been television shows that are that are influenced with it as well but you know even things like babylon 5 and and deep space 9 they're just like okay yeah we pulled from from blade runner references so it's like yeah it's just because it's so early on in the genre it's like it is a huge influence, but again, there there were other things that were just around the same time, like Akira and, and Ghost in the Shell was only like what f- four or five years after this, maybe. I think Ghost in the Shell was eighty six, eighty seven, or something, something um, like that. Yeah. So, but they all kind of are pulling from from each other to create this thing, and you know, George Lucas talks about it a lot, and people reference the lived in look of Star Wars, and that was really that was before this yeah we yeah mm-hmm. absolutely but i think with alien and you know yeah. and then further with this i think ridley scott really kind of expanded on this lived in future futurism you know because certain sci-fi movies you know if you reference you know lost in space or something it's just very you know these very clean spaceships you know <laughs> where people are in like spacesuits and you know and the, the ships are just silver and whatever um but these are just like broken down fucked up ugly <laughs> you know yeah. designs that make it look like the real world and um i know totally. it's fucking cool i mean i love that i love that ridley scott followed this movie up with with legend because do you fuck with legend I love Legend. I don't even know what it is. That is like my, I mean, regardless of it getting like trashed reviews, people hating it, I fucking love that movie. Legend is really Scott's follow-up to Blade Runner. It's like this weird Legend of Zelda Mm -hmm. live action with Tom Cruise. Um, Running around with no pants, chasing after unicorns with uh, Mia Sara from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I love it. And there's like goblins. It's so cool. Goblins following him. I mean, him it has like, Tim yeah. Curry in that fucking makeup. Yeah, it's, it's so I love cool. That. Tim Curry plays. You also, I think we also talked about it. You know, I'm the Ferris Bueller hater, right? I'm the one who's oh. like, I did not like him very much. I want to give it a shot, Scott. I really do. I want to be like, you know what? Jennifer Gray's here. Edith <laughs> here. I want to give it a shot. Uh, my sister hates me for it. I'm just like, oh, well, it's on my list. I'll maybe try to watch it again. I, mean, I can't get over Matthew Broderick being an asshole. Ferris <laughs> Bueller as a character is... Oh, well, he's unbearable. Yeah, he's he's unbearable. Yeah, he's fucking smug. 
asshole. I know. And, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I think uh, Blade Runner has now stopped uh, playing. So we've been talking for almost as long as the movie's been. But <laughs> I, I just want to uh, take the time to thank you both for being on the show. I think this conversation has been so wonderful and it's different than what I normally do, I guess, but also I'm glad that this movie means something to you all. Um, yes. and that you've been able to talk about it as opposed to what you haven't really been able to do on your own show. Um, again, Blade Runner might fit in there a little bit, but you know, I want to give you the chance to, to talk about something in. you don't get to normally do. Yeah. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Do you want to plug your show and where people can find you on socials and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. Movies that made us gay anywhere mm-hmm. where you stream podcasts we do an episode every friday mm-hmm. um you can follow us on facebook and instagram we're movies at mo- we're us- at movies that at made movies us gay, gay. uh mm-hmm. if you do want to follow us on twitter we don't really post too much anymore we don't really engage twitter too much i don't either there. yeah we're there overrated we're, we're at mtmug pod um mm-hmm. but you can also uh if you want to drop us an email we're movies that made us gay at gmail.com yeah. very easy mm-hmm. um but yeah we're just Apple Podcasts, Spotify, yeah. anywhere you listen, you can find us. And um, yeah, go give us a shot. Yeah. And then also follow them on Instagram separately, Scott Young Baller. Uh, yeah. Scott. And then I think you're Pete Lasagna or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Peter Lasagna. Instagram. Yeah. On Instagram. Yes. Yeah. yeah and they're fun to look. They're fun to look at and, you know, fun to see what they're doing. So why not? Yeah. But thank you guys so much for coming on the show. I'd love to have yeah, you back for something. And, uh, Absolutely. yeah. Thanks for your, thanks for your time. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at cultcinemacircle at gmail.com. If you'd like to give any movie recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you'd just like to say, Hey, I'm open to all of it. You can also follow the show on instagram at cult cinema circle and on twitter at cult cinema circle i tend to announce the movies that i'm going to be covering and just interact with people on there if they want you can also follow me on letterboxd at jesse j-e-s-s-e kremp k-r-e-m-p all one word on that platform i tend to log the movies that i watch i write little stupid reviews about them and just general foolishness over there Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pretty much on all of them. Be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review about the show uh, so we can grow the audience and then just spread the love all around. Be sure to tune in next week to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, where I'll be covering 1997's I Know What You Did Last Summer. As they celebrate their high school graduation, four friends are involved in a hit-and-run accident when their car hits and apparently kills a pedestrian on an isolated roadway. They dispose of the body and vow to keep the incident a secret. A year later, somebody starts sending them letters bearing the warning, I Know What You Did Last Summer. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. And remember, I'm not in the business. I am the business. Take care. Bye. Bye.